Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we're continuing with our Magician's Watch Through, and we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 6, Do You Like Teeth? Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens? Wishing to be rid of Reynard's power, Julia attempts to transfer her magic to Alice, while an incorporeal Penny struggles to warn them of the ritual's danger. He leads them to a drunk Dean Fogg, the creator of the spell. After an incubus gives them his magical tale, they perform the ritual, but when a frustrated Penny says he's going to leave, the newly empowered Alice offers to make him a new body. In Fillory, the Fairy Queen demands Margot consummate her marriage, so Elliot helps Margot trick Fomar into thinking the two have been intimate while on a seemingly romantic carriage ride to the suspicious area up north. There, Margot and Elliot discover the fairies are planting fairy eggs all around Fillory, and take several of the eggs as hostages. Quentin takes the Munchak and sails into the ever-dark abyss, searching for the fourth key. He rescues Poppy Klein on a raft at sea, who gives him the key she found in a dragon's hoard. However, he discovers that the key creates a doppelganger of him within his own mind, which incessantly assaults him with his worst thoughts about himself, making him near-suicidal. After a struggle with Poppy, Benedict ends up holding the key and is eaten by a dragon when he's overwhelmed with despair and jumps overboard. Benedict, no! As the episode ends, Alice tries using magic to build Penny a new body, but starts having seizures as Penny tries to sound the fish alarm. Yeah, so a lot happening in this episode. I, I really like this episode. Me too. Uh, but why don't we get into what are some of our magic moments? First off, I have to note how... Penny keeps using the singing fish as an alarm, which is great. And I had one of those fishes <laughs> of course, you in my garage, and it was the worst. <laughs> I would have much more preferred to have it sing, I will survive, as it does in the episode, than take me to the river, which it sang <laughs> in my house, and also probably not the original version. Poor fish. It just wants to be returned to the river. Clearly, clearly. Yeah, it was not great. What if it was Penny trying to contact you and you missed your one <laughs> I missed opportunity? Each time. I mean, there was a well, lot of opportunities. You missed your period of time in your life <laughs> where you could have been best buds with Penny. Unfortunately, yes. But as usual, a lot of great lines this episode. When Penny tells Hyman, shouldn't he be watching someone in the shower right now? And Hyman's response of just, oh, no one's showering right now. <laughs> so good. <laughs> His does... tone in contrast with what he's saying is not actually defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the character acting is so great. Absolutely. I just want to see him in all sorts of different roles because he makes Hyman so amusing while being so problematic at the same time. Exactly, yeah. Margot saying vaginas, the leading cause of death in men. <laughs> yes, the whole sex ed class she uses <laughs> on Fomar after realizing that sex ed classes are not great at making people want to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> but probably one of my favorite lines is in the conversation between Marco and Elliot when they talk about how they've changed from being glamorous, amazing mage bees to people with depth and nuance. <laughs> <laughs> Basically tracing their character arc in the show. Very, very good. Uh, and again, one of those great metal lines. And then finally for me, just, I thought that at the beginning of the episode, Quentin looks so cute in his guard uniform. <laughs> his oversized guard exactly. uniform. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and just seeing the relationship between him and Elliot post A Life in the Day, mm -hmm. where they were clearly close. They weren't standoffish. They were allowing themselves to be intimate, even if they didn't understand what that intimacy necessarily means yet. Well, you know, Elliot fixes Quentin's outfit, straightens the things, straightens, not a pun. Mm -hmm. um, they put their arms around each other. Yeah. Quentin talks about how he was looking forward to going on a boat quest with Elliot. Oh, we know you were, Quentin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you also, you have something that isn't just closeness there. You have Elliot say go be life partners with someone else for a bit, mm -hmm. which I think is, yeah, just really interesting. You know, it adds another layer that will not be addressed for a very long time in this show. But yeah, there, there's that. But then he still like gives him a kiss on the forehead or whatnot. So yeah, it's 
they did a good job, even though they're not like really addressing the relationship or all of the aspects of that currently, but like showing that something still seems to have shifted since before the whole time key timeline. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The show clearly has a lot going on and they, they don't always take breaks to just let them decompress or debrief after the latest mishaps. <laughs> but it's nice here that in their conversation highlighting why they're each going in their different directions, they are allowing for those relationship moments. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that we also see part of it because, yes, there's this whole bring back magic mission that they're on. But at this point, Quentin isn't even pretending to be a king anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's not really. And and you have Elliot being like to, to the fairy queen, you'd be shocked how easy it is to misplace people when your mind's on tax collection and annexation and unforeseen seafaring confusion. You know, it's like he's still dealing with so much as the ruler of this country and he doesn't have the time or the irresponsibility to just go off on whatever quest. He's like, Mm -hmm. no, I I have responsibilities and things that I have to do here. Plus, my best friend is forced into consummating with this 15-year-old or whatever. And, you know, he has to help. Violent, fratricidal (laughs) (laughs) 15-year-old. Yes. (laughs) Not not just any (laughs) 15-year-old, which would always be a problem, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Again, the noose that he was introduced with. <laughs> Hashtag the noose. That's all you need to know. Perfect one small prop that just illustrates so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but back to this episode, what oh, were yes. your other magic moments? Yeah, another one, you know, you were talking about that quote between Elliot and Margo when they were in the carriage and all of that. I think it's really nice to see Margo and Elliot together because we mm. haven't really seen much of that at all this season yeah. yet. And so now that they're back together after, who, who knows how much time has passed for Margo or, you know, when they're in different places, time moves differently. And... They're back, but they aren't just back to normal in their relationship. Mm-hmm. It seems like so long ago that Elliot put her in the dungeon mm-hmm. and then she lost her eye trying to get Fen back and all of that. But for them and their relationship in terms of how much they've interacted since then, they haven't had a lot of time or even the space with all of the chaos surrounding yeah. them to really spend more time together, try to heal from that, maybe talk things through more or whatnot. And so I like that we see, even though they're not the same as they were pre-going to Fillory, and they aren't healed from the difficulties that they've had in their friendship, we can still see them, like, regroup and take their responsibilities seriously and still very much enjoying each other's company at the same time Mm -hmm. because... She is feeling like, wait, are you actually trying to ma- force me to consummate this marriage with this murderer child? And he's just like, and you doubted me. Of course, I I drugged this child. <laughs> Drugging children, not a great... It's a dicey situation. Yes, absolutely. Um, But, you know, she, she makes some sort of sarcastic comment like... Of course I doubt you in some ways, you know, mm. you, you threw me in a dungeon and also I had lied to you or made these deals, <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of stuff in their relationship. And so I like that you can feel that tension, yet you can also feel the familiarity that they have with each totally. other, the very easy way that they can communicate with each other, understand what each other's saying, just, you know, uh, you know try to solve problems together. Mm-hmm, exactly. They're, they're putting Fillory first yeah, and they can be completely amicable and have each other's backs even while everything isn't the same. Just the way that they can be funny together is, is great Absolutely. and charming. Yeah. Which, yeah, I really appreciate seeing. We don't always see that, I think, in stories. Totally. Another magic moment 
is I love that there's a hedge witch legend, very recent legend, that Marina used some type of electrical transfer to steal magic from a fawn. The fact that that's just a story that's been passed around between hedges is is just a great little line to further show, one, Marina's power, but also her very questionable ethics. Absolutely. And cool to, to, you know, have that callback for Julia, too. She learned a lot from the Hedges and, mm-hmm. and from Marina and things like that. Exactly. That's a, also a valuable source of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention, I know that later on we'll definitely talk about depression and, and everything that's going on with that in this episode, since it's like a big part of this episode and and the themes in it. But just to mention, I think Jason Rolfe does such a good job at being the depression monster. Mm. Just how he communicates things and it still feels very Quentin, but the cutting dark (laughs) Quentin, getting a little bit more of a window into Quentin's mind Mm -hmm. and um, how, how in general people's thoughts can spiral and how sometimes our own minds are the ones that are beating us up not not others so totally but what do we go into our next section which is setting in society yeah i i did want to talk a little bit more about that voltaic transfer the idea of the spell of Mm. moving magic from one thing to another because i was thinking about why that spell exists or existed in a world with magicians where magic was not a resource that was so inaccessible. It made me think that, yeah, it probably was created for incidences like the legend of Marina taking it from a fawn, Mm -hmm. you know, ways of taking magic from some thing to another and quite likely not in a consenting way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Fogg created this, which I think provides us a little bit of insight into his character. But, uh, now we see Julian Alice wanting to create the same kind of uh, thing, but yeah, in a way that is something that both of them want. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it could be useful in certain circumstances when people are using their powers for a lot, a lot, a lot of evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could take their magic away from them instead of like imprisonment or, or whatever it would be, but. Also, people could just want to use it because they want extra power and they want to power a bigger spell, you know, like thinking about the Rhinoman Ultra spell from season one Mm -hmm. or two and how Alice had to have extra power Mm -hmm. from Ember to be able to do that spell without turning into an Effin. And so... Yeah, I can imagine transferring magic from another being would could be used for powering really powerful spells as well. Absolutely. Although you're mentioning of it being, you know, possibly used against people who are dangerous or what have you, now makes me think that this is totally the kind of punishment that Fogg would have for students who he expels. Mm-hmm. You know, he if he's willing to take their memories away, I can absolutely see him also being willing to take their magic away. Although, why wouldn't you do it to Marina? I mean, (laughs) also true, but maybe maybe because it's dangerous or he didn't have the incubus part that he (laughs) thought he needed. (laughs) Or maybe, you know, he in some ways, you know, has an affinity for Marina because Mm -hmm. she was his best student in a way. But then it was also the worst in a way, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also just loved that. As they were building it, they needed to take apart a bunch of 90s kids' toys to use the aluminum wiring that's not used in modern toys, Mm -hmm. which is just such a great magician-style detail, a reason for them to get a bop-it on screen, you know? (laughs) Like, just these kinds of absurd references that can provide some nostalgia for its millennial audience. Mm -hmm. Very good. Another thing that I feel like we have to mention is that they mentioned that America was being kept 38% more tolerant through a series of enchantments. <laughs> yes. Which is another one of those great throwaway lines that this show does, but also digging into it, it's like, okay, so great that magicians generally see the intolerance of the United States and at least a 
group of them wanted to use magic to stop that. Mm-hmm. You know, wanted to use magic in a way that is for societal good and increases tolerance. And of course, tolerance is the least you can ask for yeah. from people. <laughs> it's right? not compassion. It's just tolerance. Exactly. You don't tolerate something that you are welcoming of, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I mean, that, that that's just, I think, very illustrative of the kind of issues that, yeah, magicians in America who want to help the world, which in the books, especially we hear, is kind of one of the paths that many graduates take after break bills. But that I think is just, yeah, a, a really great line that also highlights, you know, the fact that just America has a great deal of intolerance and <laughs> a character like Dean Fogg would know about that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think it's important that he brings up now he is a blind, unemployed black man in America. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just like, oh, no, we lost magic. You know, for certain people, it's not just life changing, but making you less safe. Yeah. Making you have mountains of more hardships and, and things like that, which, you know, it, when he was talking about that and talking about the the 38% more tolerant and all of that, he was like, in case you hadn't noticed, or perhaps maybe you weren't in a position to need to, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, I mean, uh, just a great line. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's got me thinking that this is kind of an interesting example of the social model of disability we've talked about on the podcast before, mm -hmm. where people have impairments, but it is the way that society is structured that makes those impairments disabilities, things that mean that they cannot operate up to the expectations or needs of that society. Or not needs, but requirements. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so in both societies, a magical society and a non-magical society, Fogg had lost the natural use of his eyes. But in a magical society, there was resources put to grant him the ability to see some things through the magic and his glasses and things like that. And so he is being forced out of that magical society into having to only live in this non-magical society, which does not provide the safety needs support for someone whose vision is impaired. And yeah, I think that's an interesting kind of dynamic shift that, again, the privileges of the other characters don't make apparent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, many societies have done this. I've seen it in Japan. Every single sidewalk has a specific bumpy part of the sidewalk that connects to every crossing, to every other sidewalk, so that any person who is visually impaired can just follow those along. And it's every single street in Tokyo, every <laughs> single sidewalk yeah, has those. That sounds like oh, maybe a good idea. Exactly. Yes, obviously it's an investment, but it's not a huge investment when you have to make sidewalks anyway. And it shows just a more communal and active way of welcoming those with disabilities. Yeah, definitely. What else did you have for setting in society? There's an incubus. There is an incubus. <laughs> Which I love that he planted a joke on Fog 25 years ago that he's reaping the benefits of now. <laughs> Which is just so good in this magical world where you're a magical creature or maybe you're immortal. And so, you know, maybe this joke will pay off. Maybe it won't. But I'm going to wait until it might, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... The fact that I had totally convinced him that I had a Magic Johnson. <laughs> and when they're like, wait, so you don't? He's like, of course not. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, nothing like that exists. Which I think is just such a great, very magician's way to be like, oh yeah, there's this idea of an incubus who's just so seductive mm -hmm. and everybody wants and you know every aspect of them and their magic is focused on sex. Exactly. And they're like, no, having a magic penis is ridiculous. <laughs> no one has that. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, a great I, subversion I of that. those those expectations. Absolutely. And he's like, I don't even like sex. 
stress is a much better way to drain people's energy, you know, so I love that it wasn't just like this creepy, I mean, sure, it's a little creepy when he's sniffing their stress, Mm -hmm. but like, he's not just this creepy, predatory sex machine creature, you know, like... Yeah, I, I appreciate them yeah. switching some things up. Absolutely. And he's a hedge fund manager. Exactly. So good. Very, very good. And he grows a new tail every spring. Mm-hmm. It's just so many little things all in one scene that are delightful. Totally. And that is, I think, another great aspect of this world building, that this is just a part of him that, you know, his t- this tail for this year doesn't really impact him losing it. You know, it's not a big deal. But for now non-magical people... This is a huge source of power that they need in such an st- important way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a good scene for showing that Julia is still dealing so much with the trauma of mm. being raped and then everything that's happened after that and death she's seen and and been adjacently involved in or like this news that the magic she has came from Reynard, you know, mm-hmm. all of that is beneath the surface of her character because she's just trying to do the next thing. She's very focused, but he can sense the stress. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Even though, obviously, Alice is going through a lot post-Niffin, but he still finds more stress coming off of Julia, mm-hmm. which, yeah, I think is a, a good little detail as well. Yeah. Another thing that is just an in-passing line of fog, if any of you had attended my annual colloquia on prohibited magic, you would know that its proper name is Voltaic Transfer. And it's just like, just a throwaway line that he presents it annual colloquia Mm -hmm. on prohibited magic, but all of them were too busy to attend, you know? (laughs) It's just a great... And then also a nice, like... Just, yeah, throw a bone to the academics out there. They're still in an academic setting, even if they're not going to classes and really have nothing to do with school. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Another aspect I think is great to note is just ideas of toxic masculinity that I think Benedict really brings up. Mm. Because when he sees... Quentin looking over the edge of the boat, he's like, don't do this. I understand what you're feeling, though I've never talked to anyone about it. And Quentin asks why. And Benedict says, well, you know what parents teach you about emotions, that you should bottle them up and never talk about them and turn them into maps, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is very much what so many boys are taught in the world. I'm sure there's some pockets of the world where they're not taught that as much, but largely throughout the world, boys are people that society says are boys Mm -hmm. and yeah, are taught to bottle everything up, suppress, 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 and how obviously problematic that is, but also the really negative toll that it can take on people. I mean, look Mm -hmm. at what Benedict did. He was so overwhelmed with his feelings of depression. Feeling like a failure, even though he didn't fail in that moment. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That he kills himself. Yeah, just maybe if he had gone to therapy, things could have been different or, or whatnot. But he was taught from the beginning of his life that's not what he's supposed to do or be or how he's supposed to act. So, yeah another important point but also interesting to see that Quentin isn't like that exactly Mm -hmm. like he has at least gone to therapy he's at least checked himself into psychiatric hospitals when he felt he needed to and and things like that he's not doing everything he needs to for his mental health clearly but he's not resistant to that either yeah absolutely it's Interesting because it brings up the question of how is mental health treated in Fillory? Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about how Fillory can sometimes be represented as a pre industrial world, but mm-hmm. I would argue that it's a parallel world because it evolved and developed alongside industrialization, not through industrialization, but through magic. Mm-hmm. And so, would there be a development of a magical mental health system or? Mm-hmm 
uh, medications or other kinds of, of things, you know, like we, we saw even on Earth uh, mm-hmm. with some of the potions and things like that that they have. Uh, you know, what would that look like in Fillory? And yeah, is there a similar taboo on some of those things because it's not seen as masculine or not seen as whatever. Strong. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly Benedict is highlighting many of those cultural ideas of how gender intersects with health and mental health in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, all of the characters in this show should go to therapy. I mean, so true. Yes. Especially all of them, but especially, especially Fomar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Leave yeah. your noose at the door, Fomar. Mm-hmm. Go to therapy. Yeah. Unfortunately, clearly, matriarchy doesn't solve everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but what do we move on to our next section, which is themes and schemes? What are you thinking about? So one small one, I... I saw a bit in this episode is like a theme of trust. Mm. Uh, the Stone Queen says at the beginning of the episode that Margot can trust her, that both of them have a common enemy in the Fairy Queen, but then she immediately locks her in the room <laughs> with Fomar. Right. Um, and then you mentioned the conversation between Elliot and Margot mm. about doubting each other and, you know, their trust has been broken as well. And so, yeah, it was just an interesting thing to kind of see some aspects of in this episode of how with new alliances or with old relationships that have gone through a lot, trust can be really tenuous Mm. and how characters are struggling with that. I mean, even Quentin and Poppy, I think is another great example of Quentin trusting Poppy too quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. All of those I think are, are just some interesting small details. Also the fact that, Julie is finally telling Fog about mm. that she has magic. True. You know, she yeah. she hasn't all this time. And she has good reason not to trust Fog. Exactly. Or anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we should probably spend most of our time talking about depression as a theme. Because yeah. it's so clear in this episode. <laughs> but it's it's so good in this episode. It's That's why well I love done. this episode. Yeah. It's just like I mean, we've been talking about along the way throughout this entire podcast, all of the times that we see this coming up again for Quentin and and his motivations, behaviors in, in relation to depression. There's been even more like little signposts along the way than mm-hmm. like my first watching I noticed. I mean, obviously I knew that he had depression, but I wasn't thinking about all of them. But here, like you get to this episode and it's just such a big wave of it in yeah, really important ways. Yeah, they personify depression. They literally mm-hmm. have a depression monster that's created, you know, while they're in the abyss, the, abyss. the eternally <laughs> dark <laughs> part of the sea. Yeah. And right after Quentin was talking about how being on a mission is a hell of an antidepressant. Exactly. It's it's so great because that's Quentin. He's always trying to make the adventures be his antidepressants Mm -hmm. instead of actually being on antidepressants. And then you see what happens when you're not. Exactly. Not not that it takes away all depression, but... You might be able to handle it a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, or certainly you would be if it works for your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. And, you know, if this is your first episode, welcome. I don't know why you're here, but great <laughs> to have you. But Brittany and I have both experienced a great deal of our own depression. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is something that we have firsthand experience with. Mm-hmm. So watching it, this episode, for me at least, was very, very affirming Mm -hmm. of my experiences and of the way that depression can treat you. Like you talked about, you know, Quentin's depression monster is so believable in the kinds of things that they say and the ways that they say it, you know? Yeah, he's not just evil. He's not just like, seems like a totally different person. It's not like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Mm -hmm. These are things that Quentin would think, but they're all put together and he can't escape them because it's right there in front of his face. Exactly. And it's constant. And I've definitely been in spirals where like, I can't stop thinking those same kinds of things. Even if I can logically try to fight against them, they still can overpower me at times. And, 
you know, one of the things I think that does really well is so many of those statements are like these broad generalizations. Uh, you are going to hurt everyone, mm-hmm. just like you've hurt Julia and Alice. You know, things will always be this bad. Like all these things that are so broad and are not focused on the specifics, on logical statements, but instead on these things that are tied into feelings. Um, and I know for me, that is very, very true to my experience with those kinds of depressive episodes of feeling like, oh, well, things will never get better. Like it's literal despair and hopelessness. You know, it is the feeling like everything is so overwhelming that these things are so broadly true, even though if I was in a different headspace, I could interrogate those much more deeply. I could actually have a logical thought out conversation with myself or with others about those ideas but in those moments, that just seems so far away. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love, too, that it starts with Poppy being like, oh, you'll be fine. You're so happy and positive. Mm. And he's just like, no, I'm not normally like this. We're on a boat. I'm excited about things. And, and I think that that can be a very common thing that people can see a person and think that they're doing fine because whatever activity they're doing, they're excited about. But that doesn't mean they don't have depression. That doesn't mean when they're home alone, they don't have crushing, overwhelming feelings of despair, you know? And Yeah, I get that all the time. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, not, not in the depression. I mean, it could be in the depression sense because, like, I'm a little more extroverted and so mm-hmm. I interact with people well, people I like. (laughs) And, you know, it can give me extra energy and I can feel happier, but that doesn't mean that I'll feel happier tomorrow Mm -hmm. or uh, with my energy levels, which is a separate thing. But like people can be like, oh, well, you seem fine. You seem great, but I'm going to be so fatigued and exhausted tomorrow. I'll have extra pain, you know? And and so it's, um, yeah, I just think a really great part for her just judging him based off of knowing him for 20 minutes or yeah yeah Uh, while he was on the boat and drinking yeah 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 and that you can have happiness and you can have positivity at the same time you're having a depressive Mm -hmm. longer depressive episode you know um it's not like they're completely mutually exclusive at every single moment of every day you know and so yeah i like that they bring that up totally And, you know, for me, oftentimes when I'm around other people, there's an element of performance involved Mm, mm -hmm. where you don't want to bring, you feel bad that you might bring them down if you just bring your depression into it. And so you pretend it's not there or it's not as big a deal. You know, for Quentin, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, okay, sure, he's got the mission, you know, boat experience helping to lift his spirits, but also, oh, there's an attractive young woman here. Maybe I should also, yeah, not immediately be as depressive as I normally would be because I don't want to start this relationship off on a bad foot, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it also shows that people who suffer with depression, especially like longer term or mm-hmm. dysthymia or things like that, or, or have depressive episodes pretty regularly in their life, things can be going well and they cannot feel depressed and then one thing can happen and yeah. it feels like it crumbles and now you are dragged to the depths of a depressive episode very quickly, um, depending on what happens. So, yeah, maybe he's... We're making progress on the keys. We found so many. We'll be able to get magic back. The one thing that makes me special and feel like I have purpose, we'll be able to get that back. We're making headway. It's happening against all odds. We don't even have magic and we're doing it. You know, maybe he's feeling good about himself. Mm -hmm. And he just saw that or sort of remembered this whole life that he led that didn't just end with him alone, depressed, wanting to die and so yeah maybe he's feeling pretty good but then one thing can happen and your mood completely changes you know yeah exactly i also appreciated the montage of the depression monster being like (laughs) can't get rid of me through exercise can't get rid of me through food through drink through sex you know (laughs) which like is also these things are often what people turn to to try mm-hmm. to cope. Uh, sometimes they can be helpful, but not always, and mm-hmm. usually only in the short term. Totally. 
it's like, yeah, it can raise your endorphins or, you know, whatever for a bit, but it's going to wear off. Exactly. Fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah. And I also love about this whole plot line how it shows that depression isn't only the most dire, deepest things. It can also be the smaller things mm. because the depression monster says, are you sick of the shallow, petty stuff? The thing is, I start on the outside and I work my way into the core. And so, yeah, at the beginning, it was like, you're embarrassing yourself. You drank too much and passed out. That compared to him saying the part of you that kept magic from Julia when you could have helped her, that's the part that sent her on her path that got her sexually assaulted. Those are very different things. One is way more severe than the other, but both can contribute to depression. And yeah, there are things that Quentin has done, particularly that, particularly Mm -hmm. how he treated Julia, how horrible he was to her and condescending that he should feel guilty about. He should feel remorse. He should feel some degree of shame. Obviously, it's not like, oh, you should stay in a perpetual state of that, but through apologizing and trying to make amends and talking it through and and stuff, hopefully you can come to forgive yourself for the wrong you've done and not do it again. But... I don't know that he's done that work yet. I think it's, you know? it's obvious he hasn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was being kind. <laughs> part of taking responsibility is taking responsibility for what is your fault, but not for what's not your fault. And while it's true that what he did to Julia was wrong, it was wrong in and of itself, not because it eventually led to her rape, you mm-hmm. know, and that rape isn't his fault. His treatment of her was his fault. Yeah. And his response to her rape is Also his bad. Fault. Yeah. Yeah. But... but you know, here he's, yeah, again, making such general statements, making these mm-hmm. most impactful, most emotional perspectives that show that, yeah, he ha- he's not actually responsibly taking account for his actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for him, too, not everything somebody thinks when they're really depressed is inaccurate Mm -hmm. oftentimes a lot of it can be or yeah these broad generalizations that aren't true but there's also some things that i think for quentin in particular maybe feelings that he has when he's really depressed once he gets out of that episode he doesn't return to those thoughts to try to work through them Mm -hmm. which are a big problem For example, the depression monster says, how many people have to pay the price for your heroics? You are willing to destroy everyone around you to find something that makes you feel okay, but you're never going to feel okay. And I think that that's true. Mm -hmm. That's, That's not just his, you're responsible for your friend getting sexually assaulted. That statement that he made is true and it's something that when he's not in this place of severe depression he should interrogate he should think about am i willing to destroy people around me to try to do something that makes me feel okay because i think we've already seen that happen Mm -hmm. and so the only way for him to not do that in the future is if he actually grapples with these ideas but once he's out of that deep depression he doesn't want to go back to these thoughts that are really hard and will make him feel depressed again you know and so he just ignores them which doesn't help anything and allows him to continually make similar mistakes and not actually become a person that he would feel better about (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i feel personally attacked but absolutely (laughs) right (laughs) i'm your own depression monster (laughs) Well, you and my depression monster tag team. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, there's another part here. Another aspect of depression is oftentimes, well, at least in my experience of interacting with some pretty nice or considerate people (laughs) in my life, if you've had depression, you're also more compassionate to people who have depression because like you get it in a way that somebody who 
hasn't ever been depressed mm. or been depressed long term or whatnot, like just doesn't get it. And so Poppy just passes this key on because it doesn't really bother her that much. She was able to survive three weeks alone on a tiny little raft with this and not try to end her life or herself anything, you know. Mm -hmm. So she just passes it on without any real regard for if other people are at a different place than her in their mental health and it could devastate them or even end their life, you know. And Quentin, because he has experienced that... He's like, I can't just pass this key on to someone else so that I don't have to deal with my depression monster because that person might have a 50% chance of killing themselves. And I'm not going to do that uh, in a way that she just doesn't care. And not to say that like, oh, people who don't have depression would would do what she does. I think she's in particular quite morally questionable as well. Yes. She says as much herself. (laughs) Yes, she knows it. Um, So yes problematic, very Mm -hmm. self-centered, and all of that. But yeah, I think there is something to, even though he is suffering with this depression monster, he is not going to give that key to someone else. Exactly. Because he doesn't want somebody else to have to suffer like he does. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that was also a good part to have in there. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it, it is one of Quentin's strengths that he has that compassion for other people. It is oftentimes a hero complex, Mm -hmm. but it's also Quentin would not knowingly hurt someone most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, yeah, a really good thing to to highlight. Yeah. Well, why don't we go into our next section, which is from another point of view. Who do you have? I have two small ones. Okay. Uh, First, I actually want to talk about Fog for a little bit. Mm. When he is talking with Julia and Alice and he's reacting to the fact that she has magic, which obviously he gets frustrated just because it's something that was kept from him that maybe could have impacted the closure of the school and all these other things that were happening. Mm -hmm. But he's also personally affected because she has magic that she doesn't want while he's lost everything. Mm -hmm. He says that he's a magician without magic and a dean without a school. And we see another depressed character who's trying to use alcohol as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can sometimes relate to that myself, but I can just see and sense and understand that despair feeling like it's unfair. That his losing magic lost him his identity, his job, his ability to see his school, that he not only is his job and his identity, but like his main goals in life. Mm -hmm. All of this was closed down. Um, And yeah, I mean, I could imagine myself as an educator as well, feeling like if something meant that I could no longer educate, I could no longer do something that I believe in the mission of, that would be a problem. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the laws that restrict certain kinds of teaching of history and uh, that Mm -hmm. impact education in those ways are really scary to me. Because even though I've been safe so far in blue Los Angeles, who knows how those things can change over time. So yeah, I just feel a lot for Fog, who has already hit rock bottom in many ways, but who I could just imagine feels like he's not only continuing to be beaten by the things that he's learning, but also people keep asking him of things Mm -hmm. that they still need his help. They still need his guidance, even though they're also not going to listen to everything he says, Mm -hmm. even though they've shown they don't respect him because they kept it from him this long. That just being, yeah, so, so frustrating. And I think one of his last lines is that fixing his glasses won't fix him. Mm -hmm. And that while he, I'm sure he's grateful for them, he doesn't see this as the magical solution that Alice seems to be thinking. Alice, who's now been empowered, is understandably feeling very positive about the fact that she has magic again and what she thinks she can do with it. But for Fog, it's very little and is certainly not enough to change the wider circumstances of everything he's experienced. Yeah, and I think uh, another aspect for him too is that very early on in the series, after he had been attacked by Martin and his hands were being healed and he tried magic and it didn't work, 
they're like, oh, well, you might need more time. And he's, he wasn't worried. He was like, I taught myself magic when I was six years old, four years old, something like that. Since he was a child, he taught himself magic and he's very skilled at it. And so it's not the same as people losing magic who learned about it later in life. Mm -hmm. Like this has been an integral part of himself since the beginning of his memories, pretty much. You know? No, absolutely. Yeah, so Fog, I think, was, was something that spoke to me. And then another character who's lost quite a bit, Penny, was <laughs> All, also someone I want to talk about. Always. Yes. <laughs> uh, because here we see Penny really struggling with his new circumstances, which last episode we saw in contrast to Katie, where he was saying, I'm not dead. Mm -hmm. And Katie was saying, but you're not alive. You're not, you're not a part of the world in a way that is full. And here we see him getting very frustrated because he only is trying to have some basic communication and he can't even do that to mm. warn Julian Alice about the dangers of this spell. You know, he watches as they try to do the transference for over an hour trying to get them to stop mm. until he finally is able to be the fish mm -hmm. and, you know, be the alarm. So later on was there, when they're still trying and, and Hyman starts talking to him and, and Hyman says, I think a great line uh, as someone who might be an audience for the show in his kind of meta <laughs> position that Penny cares more than anyone in this whole story, but nobody cares about him anymore. That I mean, he doesn't say it, but nobody cares about <clears throat> him anymore. That's true. Yeah, that's my add-on. <laughs> Penny says, then why is everyone acting like I'm not part of the story anymore? Yeah, yeah. Um, We're not Penny. We love <laughs> no, you. No, <laughs> absolutely not. But yeah, I can understand his frustration of still caring so much but having so little power to be involved and again people are not exactly making it easy on him or considering him no obviously the key does cause a great deal of discomfort or pain but by having nobody checking in with penny you essentially yeah, leave him to haunt things in a way that must be so so depressing and so frustrating Especially for someone like Penny, who always thinks he knows best and is usually right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he has this devastating line that says, I can't be a ghost person in my own life. Exactly. Which is just, like, so sad. No. <laughs> Penny. No. And, I mean, I think it's so, it's very, like, kind of cute, touching thing that once they figure out, oh, he can be this fish they put it on the wall they hang the little truth key underneath it mm -hmm. so it's like if he needs to communicate to somebody they can just pick it up and you know it's like he has his own little station but it's also so dehumanizing in a way as well that like he can't interact unless he bees this inanimate object awful inanimate object <laughs> with the painfully <laughs> almost sarcastic song i will I survive for penny so even though it's it's kind of, it's a nice thing that they do for him it also means like this is the only place they can talk to him like he, what he just has to hang around here if he wants to talk to them you know it's just, yeah it's and they have really to be there difficult. if he mm -hmm. wants to talk to them yeah it's not like anyone is before they're making these big decisions being like i wonder what penny thinks about this and actively, proactively, trying to consult him, trying to keep him a part of it. They're just saying, we'll be here if you need us. Mm -hmm. But it's on you to let us know that that's the case. And that's that's really awful. And so him wanting to leave makes sense to me. Particularly because, yeah, it's Julia and Alice who are there, who are both very distracted with what's going on with them. Julia, he mentions, like, we barely know each other. I don't think that you care about me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to change my mind based off your platitudes that, again, like Penny's able to do very often, he's able to kind of call bullshit on in some mm -hmm. ways. Uh, when she says, I don't want you to give up. And he's like, how can you tell me that? And Alice is thankfully more effective in giving him hope and giving him something that might be able to help and saying, well, now she's got magic. She can help create a body for him, which I think does make him think like, okay, someone gives a shit about me, mm -hmm. uh, which is why he stays. And then why he's there when she starts convulsing as she's doing this magic. And all he can do is go into the fish mm -hmm. and hope that someone hears. Yeah. It must be just such a awful position to be in. Mm-hmm. And 
Also, you know, just the casual mention of him having more trauma that he had seen a group of magicians all die right. trying to do this transfer of magic. By the end, everyone was on fire. It's like, oh, Penny. And Penny. he does such a great job of delivering those kinds of lines with impact. Mm-hmm. You know, like I saw people do this and they ended up on fire. I think it's it's a, just a great delivery of so many of his lines in showing, even though this is a one-off line that just you know, moves the plot forward a little bit, he's still giving it the kind of gravitas that it would have for his character. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, we don't know who those people are, what they were doing. We never get any of that backstory. It's not actually essential to the show and what the show's trying to do. But for Penny, it is impacting. Yeah, and I think it's also just like a really interesting but sad <laughs> aspect too is that Hyman is the only one, the only character really thus far that like really kind of bears witness to one of the most important parts of Penny, which is that he cares for others so much. Sure, Hyman has been watching everything at Break Bills for quite a while, but there's a bunch of things that have happened not at Break Bills, that he was around other friends or other people, you know, that Hyman didn't have access to, to watching that. Yet, those people that he spent much more time around, even Katie, you know, who doesn't feel like she knows hardly anything about him, she would probably know the most, but... We can see as viewers how much Penny cares mm-hmm. constantly. And even even he's, he's watching them work with the Chancellor. He's like, no, like you're doing it wrong. This wire's coming undone, you know. That, that line you mentioned about, like, don't you have some shower to go <laughs> haunt? And he's like, Fog's the only one who's showering right now and he's asleep. And Penny automatically, even though he's watching, he's preoccupied with, are these two people going to blow themselves up or something? He's like, Fog needs help. Is he all right? He's automatically asking, even for someone who really hasn't done hardly anything for him. You know, he's even said in the past, like, haven't you ever noticed Fog isn't that helpful? Mm -hmm. You know, when he lost his magic, Fog was just like, you can go to Mayakovsky. There's nothing I can do for you. You know, like he didn't really help him yet. He's concerned about Fog uh, just because Penny is a compassionate person, uh, even if he hides it most of the time. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah, a really great moment. Yeah, I I love it. And yeah, it's just, I wonder what it would feel like for Penny to have someone who irritates you and you know is very problematic, but is also the only person you can easily talk with all the time and interact with, be somehow the only person that, like, sees this side of you that you try to hide. Yeah. Oh, Penny. Penny. I love love you. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Penny's so great. Uh, Well, whose perspective did you want to discuss? So I was really thinking about Julia Mm. in this episode, how she wants to give up this magic that she has currently because it came from Reynard. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how alone she must feel in all of it because she's surrounded by people constantly not getting it and constantly thinking that she's choosing the wrong thing or not understanding her choices. Last episode, Persephone was like, it doesn't matter where it came from. It matters what you do with it. And it's like clearly not listening to her. She's like, I don't want this. Mm -hmm. I don't accept this. And then Persephone just leaves and doesn't take it away or, you know, respect her wishes. And then also uh, at the end of last episode, Alice was like, it might sound horrible, but he's gone. Does it matter where it came from? It's magic. Julia's just like, you don't understand. And Alice says, no, I don't. Which I at least Alice recognized that I don't understand what you're going through. But still being like, does it really matter where mm-hmm. it came from? Then in this episode, Fog saying, you want to rid yourself of the one thing we all so desperately want. Then him being like, well, yeah, you're too privileged to have to worry about these other things. Him not taking a step back and instead of judging her for her choice, trying to understand why even though everyone wants to get magic back so much, she doesn't want this magic because this magic is violating and distressing to her. 
re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was just thinking that she must feel so alone that she's making these huge decisions and nobody gets it. Yeah. E- even Penny being like, well, you gave up magic. Well, it's not the same. You know, totally. it, it, it's not the same circumstance. And Dean Fogg isn't the same circumstance. You know, she has a unique traumatic event that is motivating or is influencing her decisions and yeah people just don't seem to give that the weight it should have Mm -hmm. then penny you know i I get why he's frustrated (laughs) he doesn't even have a body it's not even (laughs) he doesn't have magic yeah literally can't talk or communicate or anything unless somebody's holding this key and then he asks her well what's your plan are you just gonna go back to law school live off your trust fund and she says actually no my plan was to take five minutes and try to remember what life was like without a god or a quest or some dead asshole bothering me. And I don't know, frankly, beyond that, it's none of your business. So I love that she stands up for herself and is like, it doesn't matter what I'm going to do. I made these choices and I'm going to try to figure out how to exist to be able to breathe, you know? So yeah, I just, I feel like she just has such huge experiences no, not, not only that she was raped, but also all of her friends were murdered in front of her. You know, like mm-hmm. she has all of these things and people don't take those things as seriously as they should when interacting with her. Luckily for her, she is a strong person who is just going to be like, no, don't try to make me feel bad about these choices. I'm going to stand up for myself. Absolutely. Yeah, I really enjoy the interaction between Julia and Penny because I think they're both quite strong people and Mm -hmm. they're both coming from, I think, really valid experiences. But I can understand why there's a disconnection there because, yeah, I think Penny saying you're going to go back and live off of your trust fund is really telling because that's something that Penny's never had access to. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, sure, she is able to go and and take these five minutes, which is great for her. She needs that. But it's something that Penny never would have had the chance to do. And even when he's half dead, he still doesn't have the chance to just rest Mm -hmm. and figure that out, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I can see both their frustrations with each other. And you're absolutely right that, yeah, it's great that, you know, it's not just like, oh, She's privileged, and that's the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But there is more complexity there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think how her story ends in this episode is with her dreaming, right? Yeah. And she wakes up from this nightmare of Reynard, and he says, The bone in your arm healed in six little weeks. How come your fear of heights never did? I'm not the bone, I'm the terror. I do love how you keep trying and trying and trying and trying. It's so creepy, obviously, Mm -hmm. but also just so devastating because this is a dream she has. This is something that her mind is creating. She feels this in some way. This is her fear. This is her worry, even when she doesn't have the magic and she's taking a nap in a park with a book, it's still tormenting her. Yeah, which I think is also interesting as another form of depression or another form of mental health that Mm. is something that you can't just get rid of. You can't just logic away. That sticks with you, and her trauma is clearly doing that even as she is taking these steps, making these choices to try to heal and distance herself from it. Yeah, I mean, she's trying to do what is healthiest for her, but that doesn't mean everything gets healed. Exactly. Yeah. Well, why don't we go to our last little section, which is revisiting the title of the episode. What do you think about Do You Like Teeth? Yeah, it's an interesting title. Mm. Um, I don't think it necessarily connects to most of what's going on in the episode. So when I heard it, I didn't immediately remember most of what happened. I did remember Margot's conversation with Fomar. (laughs) And that's in large part because when I was in high school, I heard about the movie Teeth, which is essentially the same kind of idea. Mm. Uh, And I saw a trailer for it and I was like, whoa, there's some weird movies out there. (laughs) Um, But... Yeah, I don't know. It it doesn't really connect with the depression, which I think we've talked about is such a, a core element of this episode mm-hmm. that I wonder if a different title, even like a depression monster. The Abyss. Yeah, right. Could be something that's a little bit more 
thematically congruent. Yeah, I mean, I think it actually connects more like when I was thinking about it a little bit. I think that there are ways that it could connect. It could be kind of interpreted as like unexpected, unwanted side effects of something. So obviously in the Margot Fomar, what she's trying to mm-hmm. dissuade him with. But then with Quentin, he wants this gold key. He wants a quest to distract him. But that key is the depression key. Like that key has teeth in a way. That in he multiple didn't... ways. Yeah. Because that... that's what I think they're called on the, the mm-hmm. end of the key. And for Penny, you know, he didn't want to die. He didn't want to go to the underworld. He didn't want to have to be with the library for a billion years or whatnot. But he can barely interact with the living. So it has, like, this other side effect that is still difficult and painful. And then you have Alice. She wants magic back more than anything, she says. And then she collapses from it. So I I think that it does actually connect. But I wouldn't have connected that except being like, oh, we're going to talk about the title. (laughs) (laughs) So if I stop and think about it. I think it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. That raises it from a B minus to a B plus for me, but. Do you want me to talk about it more? Will that maybe raise it to an A minus? I mean, that's what my students always try to do. And <laughs> it's always so effective. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we are going to be watching episode seven, Poached Eggs, where Todd tods things up. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can be a part of our monthly Zoom meetups. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Till then, geek out! out.